0: Well good evening, um, I think I recognize most faces in the room, so I think a lot of you do know me, Nick Kidwell, um, at Valley Creek Church in Malvern. This morning was the first time that I actually said something at, at church where I said, you know, and that's why here at Covenant Fellowship we, <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, so it's still there, you guys are still there in my heart, and uh, <laughs> thinking about thinking about you. Well, I am, I am glad to be with you guys this evening. We got a lot of stuff uh, to talk about this evening. This is a, a huge topic. Um, I hear this is one of the larger crowds, which speaks to, I know that there are uh, just a lot of questions we have about this and how to think about this area as believers. So before we dive in, um, I want to uh, give a few little kind of caveats to our time and then we'll we'll dive into this first this is obviously a a sensitive issue we're talking about sex and sexuality so if your kids are here um, you can flip through the outline if you'd like I'm not going to use any words or terms that aren't in the outline so um, you know my wife and I even had to talk I was like we haven't had the talk with Anna yet, so <laughs> I don't know if some of these words are going to be big question marks for her. So you can flip through that and, and, and take a look. Um, second, there's a lot we could talk about here. Um, time constraints and even just what I've been able to devote my time to and study will largely gear towards the sexuality aspect of this um, and sexual expression versus gender issues. But they are so intimately tied to one another, I do believe we will be able to speak to both even as we look kind of primarily at the sexual expression uh in this issue um another thing to say is i am speaking assuming a christian audience here so um not saying i assume that you all are believers in this room if you're with us but i'm going to be speaking as if god's word is the authority um for us and um and, and assuming faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So that's, that will be the the orientation I'm speaking from this evening as we're talking. Um, Jared laid out a little bit of the uh, you know outline. I'm going to go 45, 50 minutes here, and then we'll do the, the Q&A time um, and the panel discussion. And just, I think many of you would know this, um, but this is an issue that is personal to me. I have dealt with same-sex attraction in my life, uh, and I share that. One, to hopefully serve as a testimony to God's faithfulness in this area. So I'm someone who does have skin in the game. Um, I don't, you know, the, the truths we're going to talk about this evening have had impact very personally on my life. Um, and I can say for the better, for the good. God is a good God and he, he loves us. Um, so I share that as hopefully I can, I can stand as a witness. I'm not going to share much about my personal experience here. I'm open to... Um, Discussing that, though, if you have questions for me afterwards, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very open to that. Um, and then I also want to say that my personal experience, though, is not the reason that I'm being asked to be the one to share. Any of the pastors could have shared about this. We don't have to have experienced something ourselves to be able to speak truth and, and to, um, to share that. But, but I have given thought to this issue in a particular way, and there's a, a personal aspect that, for me, it, that I hope stands as a witness to God's goodness and, and kindness to us, so want to dive in. So, just for us, why are we talking about this issue? Why does it matter? Um, as believers, we know that God cares about what we do. Um, sin is real. We're to pursue holiness. We're to walk in the ways that God desires for us to walk, and so He cares. And as we read the scriptures, we see He cares a lot about human sexuality and about sexual expression. I don't know why God designed things this way, but He gave great meaning to sex and how we uh, express ourselves both as male and female and how we express ourselves with each other. And I like this quote from Kevin DeYoung, it cannot be overstated how seriously the Bible treats the sin of sexual immorality. And I'll share, I'm not going to go through all the quotes in this outline. Hopefully this is a resource for you guys. I'll go through some of them. I know it's big. You're probably like, how long is this going to be tonight? We're not going to go through all the quotes. They're there for you. Sexual sin is never considered adiaphora, a matter of indifference, uh, an agree-to-disagree issue like food laws or holy days. To the contrary, sexual immorality is precisely the sort of sin that characterizes those who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. There are at least eight vice lists, lists in the New Testament, and sexual immorality is included in every one of these. You would be hard-pressed to find a sin more frequently, more uniformly, and more seriously condemned in the New Testament than sexual sin. And that obviously includes the gambit. That's everything. We're talking about adultery. We're talking about pornography. We're talking about any kind of deviation sexually. That's what we're talking about here, including homosexuality. So, given the culture we live in that is a free-for-all of sexual expression, we live in the, the sexual revolution we need to understand what does God's word say because God obviously takes sexuality very seriously, unlike our culture. Um, and, uh, and so we want to value it. We want to understand what God says and we want to think rightly about this. And as believers, we need to know what God's word says so that we are able to answer um, when people bring things to us, that we know, again, what God says, and most importantly, that we are prepared to help those who are dealing with this, or if you're dealing with this yourself. Um, You know, I I grew up in a time where this was not really talked about. Uh, You know, as a young man who was dealing with these things, I never heard it talked about in church. The only thing I ever heard said would have been just the the slangs and slurs. You know, gay used to be a derogatory. I'm glad we're past that, and if you still use that, I encourage you not to. It's not helpful. It's... um, but it was there was no helpful teaching, there was no helpful talking on this, and, and we need to, as the church, engage on this issue and help people who are um, who are suffering. And as I've as I've shared about this issue, the number of people who come up to me and say, "Well, I've got questions, you know, on this. I've had all these questions. Thank you. I've not heard teaching on this, or um, I have struggled with this, and and I've never shared this with anyone, including my wife. I had someone come up to me, and so we want to create a space where people are able to share. And know that we're all in the same boat. We've all got brokenness. We've all got sin. We're all trying to understand what God has for us and what God's word says as it applies to our lives. And we want to create a space for people to be able to talk about that. And for those that we love, um, for ourselves, to be able to engage God's word on the issue as well. So I'm hoping tonight we can do that a little bit. So I'm going to share a little bit just of kind of where we're at as a culture. And you guys would know this largely. How did we get here we're going to talk some about what God's word says. I'm really wanting to provide you with resources and with, um, you know, kind of a skeleton outline of, okay, how do I know what God says about this issue? Because obviously there's a lot of competing voices here. And then some practical helps on how do I engage with, with this uh, practically. Um, so how did we get here? Well, we do live in a time of massive change as it relates to this issue. I have a few graphs here in this, and I think these graphs are astonishing. You look at the nexus in 2008, where this shift happens. I've got graph A and B. Homos- is homosexuality morally wrong? Should homosexual marriages be valid? Graph A. So in 2001, only 40% said it was morally acceptable. By 2021, almost 70% said that it was Morally acceptable. You see the same thing here in, you know, should homosexual marriages be valid? And within Christian perspectives, there was a 10% increase in acceptability as well over that time span. These are massive statistics for something that has been the bedrock of human society. What is a man? What is a woman? What is a marriage? That has been the bedrock of society for the ages, even in ages past, where Folks did, you know, engage with things prior to a Christian ethic coming in. There was still this understanding of what a man was, what a woman was, what a marriage was. And these things have just been uprooted in 12 years <laughs> in our society. And so we're in a, a whirlwind here of trying to understand what's going on and what God says to this. And not only that, as this is changing, we're seeing increases then in the, the percentage of people who are walking this out. I know many in this room have loved ones, have friends, themselves are experiencing this. We see percentages increasing. There's a quote here. The percentage of U.S. adults who self-identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or something other than heterosexual has increased to a new high of 7.1%, which is double the percentage from 2012. But then if you go further into that and you look at the age breakdown, roughly 21%... Of Generation Z Americans who have reached adulthood, those born between 97 and 2003, identifies LGBT. That's, that's a massive number. That's nearly double the proportion of millennials who do so, and the gap widens further when compared with older generations. Now, there's a lot that goes into that. You've got more, obviously, acceptability, so you do have some numbers there, of just folks who are willing to say that. You have some bandwagon you know, it, it kind of is cool. I've heard that from, you know, it's, it's, it, you're kind of out if you aren't out <laughs> uh, in some ways. And, um, but then there, with culture changing, there is an increase. We are people who adapt to the people around us. So there's an increase of folks who are being tempted in these ways, who are going down these paths. And we're seeing that, and society has, um, has changed. So how did we get here? Well, there's philosophical roots to it. We live in a in a, a worldview everyone in all time has, and we live in an enlightened period, a postmodern period, one that is given to moral relativism. So basically, you know, as we see, I think the the gender issue in particular, but even the sexuality bit, they both speak to this this detachment from what what is real, what we can see, what we can touch, and then what we think about that. And what we think about that is what's real, uh, as opposed to what standard or um, solid objective truth is. So we live in this age of, I determine everything. You do you, you know, what, whatever makes you happy, that all comes out of, that's not just Some people say this all comes out of this philosophy, this postmodern philosophy, this moral relativism that's been brewing and building for hundreds of years, and it's really coming to its fullest expressions in these times where you can be whatever you want to be. You know, I I can be a cow right now. If I want to be a cow, I can be, it's about what you think. And so we find ourselves there in this gender unicorn you see here. This is a tool that is used in some schools, not all schools, you know, we're not wanting Uh, This evening to certainly not wanting to fear monger anything like that but these are real things that are happening um, and we want to be aware of these things you look at this and basically what this thing does is breaking down that it's not that you're a man it's not that you're a woman you can express yourselves in a variety of ways so I could have an identity as a female but express that in a masculine way so I could I could I identify as a female but I like to dress as a boy but then I, I had my sex at birth was assigned female or, or other. I'm physically attracted to both or, or, or to men, and then there's an emotional component as well. So it's just this melting pot of whatever your desires, whatever you're thinking, whatever you're feeling, This is my, and this is, this is what we're being told is right and normal. Um, and so we got to know, is this right and normal? Because to me, and as Bible-believing Christians, we should look at this and say, this is very confusing, and this has to be confusing for our young ones, and this is confusing for society. Um, and so we got to know, we have to know what does God, what does God say? So so there's this philosophical framework that has come into play here. There is activism that's come into play here. This doesn't come out of a vacuum. These, these changes have been fought for and, and pushed. Um, this quote, there's a second paragraph here. In 2016, John Hopkins announced that it would start performing sex reassignment surgeries again. They didn't do it because they saw it as destructive to the human body and not helpful. This was not a consequence of new scientific evidence. LGBTQ Nation reported that the policy reversal came about thanks to mounting criticism against the respected medical center and faculty member and psychiatrist Paul McHugh in particular. He he was a big proponent of the, the adverse effects and the harmful nature of sex reassignment surgeries. So these kinds of things have happened. So, you know, when the um, psychiatric journals changed and all of that, those things aren't happening because new evidence has come to light. They're happening because there's been advocacy. They're happening because people want, you know, these things to be changing. So, so that is a reality, and we're aware of that. We know that those things are out there. And I like this quote, one of these one of my book recommendations. If you want a deep dive in the issue, this is a great one. There's a lot to read here. Um but Robert, I think you pronounce his last name Gagnon. Um The Bible and homosexual practice. He wrote this. This was written in 2001 and this one quote really stood out to me cuz even for a few reasons. One, he wrote in 2001 and what he's writing, he's writing as if it's a distant future. He's speaking quite prophetically of what came, um, but it wasn't that long ago. So he says, Indeed, this, the total annihilation of societal gender norms, is one of the explicit goals of homosexual activists and organizations. And he goes into how they sought to, to bring about those changes. In its most bizarre forms, we will be asked... So when he wrote this, we weren't being really asked that yet. We will be asked, as a culture, to accept as perfectly normal... And well-adjusted, a man wearing lipstick, pantyhose, and a pink dress. Again, this was 2001. This was just 20 years ago. Big things have happened since this point, and these activists have achieved their goals. Um, and they've used things such as we see here—social media, shame, and cancel culture. These things also are feeding all of this peer pressure. It's it's heavily it heavily influences kids, and it heavily influences. All of us. We need to be aware of that across the spectrum of whatever we're thinking about. Our minds are so affected by what we see. And whether you're consciously thinking about it or not, the pressure of knowing you're on the outside of the pack, that's hard. And so people, you know, give themselves over to these things. And I do still firmly believe that folks who are in support of these issues, many of them, in their inward being, do know something's not quite right about what's being said. But you can't say that. And you don't want to say that, because you don't want to look like a bigot. You don't want to look like someone who's hateful. You don't want to look like these things. So it's very hard to step outside of that peer pressure. And our kids in particular, it's going to be very challenging for them. I'm grateful to have grown up when I did. There was a lot of guardrails for me as a young man who was dealing with this. Our kids don't have those same kind of guardrails in society. Um, And then finally, the failure of the church. I do think The church at large for for many years, for a long time, didn't speak helpfully to this issue, as I said before. And, And what that does, I think there was, you know, this shame attached to this issue in particular in an unhealthy way. A shame that really made individuals feel other apart from the rest of humanity, rest of God's people. This is something, you know, very strange. Three heads, totally bizarre. And then those people weren't hearing anything helpful from the church and find, find a community who's going to listen to them, find a community who's going to speak to them. And I think that that vacuum really did help some of these advocacy groups and so forth to step up and create a voice in this. So we as believers need to be a helpful voice and we need to be championing, championing what God says and not just because he says it, but because it is good. And we're going to talk about that. It is good and it does promote human flourishing. So, with that said, this is our culture. What does God's word say about this? So, there's been four perspectives historically on this issue. Uh, One would be the liberal perspective. The liberal approach sees what the scriptures teach on the issue, but they reject them. They're not afraid to say that our experience and opinions trump what the scriptures lay out. Scripture is not the ultimate authority. This is a good quote. For time's sake, I'm not going to read it, but they basically say, yes, yes. God's word says this is wrong, it's outdated, it's outmoded. We know better, again, based off of our experience and our feelings. We obviously would not even consider this a Christian approach as folks who do hold to the scriptures. Um, So when I say Christian, I put quotes on that. This would be folks who are claiming to be Christians. I would not say this is in any way um, orthodox or in keeping with what we know to be true from God's word or uh, the teaching of Jesus Christ. Uh, the revisionist position, the revisionist approach is to reinterpret the scriptures to fit the sexual paradigms that people desire. One of the leading arguments is that the scriptures aren't speaking about the homosexual experiences that we encounter in our contemporary culture. So they're saying, well, that they were talking about specific things. They were talking about, they, they didn't have a category for orientation. That's not what they meant um, so Matthew Vines, here, he writes this book. He is a professing believer. He is someone who has given himself to a gay lifestyle. He says, the bottom line is this. The Bible doesn't directly adjust, address the issue of same-sex orientation or the expression of that orientation. While it's six references to same-sex behavior are negative, the concept of same-sex behavior in the Bible is sexual excess, not sexual orientation, which we're going to talk some about that. It's not true. This, this argument in particular actually does not hold much weight. You're going to hear more of the liberal uh, approach that says, yes, God's word says this, but it's outdated. It's outmoded. And most people who would go the way of revisionist will ultimately end up in the liberal camp Um, because they've only, they've gone the revisionist trying to make God's word fit themselves. You've already rejected God's word when you're at that point of, of making it fit what you think. The next one, neo-traditional. This is the one for us, and I know many of you are members here at Covenant. You guys get excellent teaching. You're rooted in God's word. This is the one when I think, where's the biggest risk for us as a church body? I think it's this one, in particular people kind of in my generation and below. I would say this in this camp there are sincere believers and churches who are faithful to God's word but are wrong on this issue and are kind of straddling two lines that are are unhelpful. And so this approach embraces the Bible as authoritative and sincerely do embrace the Bible as authoritative. And they affirm the historical teaching of the church on these matters, but it differs in that they believe there's nothing explicitly sinful about homosexual orientation per se. So it's kind of a nuanced thing here, but what they're saying essentially is all of you know, basically they've bought into the identity aspect of this. There really are gay people and not gay people. Um, You know, homosexuality is an identity bit. And so they're trying to reconcile that. Okay, God's word says we don't engage on this physically, but okay, but if people are born this way, this is their identity. How do we still, though, think about that? And so here's some quotes. My sexuality, my basic erotic orientation to the world is inescapably intertwined with how I go about finding and keeping friends. Rather than interpreting my sexuality as a license to bed with someone or even form a monogamous sexual partnership with him, I can harness and guide its energies in the direction of sexually abstinent yet intimate friendships. My being gay and saying no to gay sex may lead me to be more of a friend to men, not less. Well, I like this book by Burton Lambert, Transforming Homosexuality. This is a good resource. They say, We are deeply concerned about his argument. Sexual attraction to a person of the same sex is not a platform for spiritual fruit. It is an occasion for repentance. We would take the classic Christian approach that sanctifying homosexual desires means that those desires can be mortified and that new holy desires can grow in their place. So basically, in this camp, this neo-traditional camp, there's, there's a, a desire to embrace both sides, and that's what they're trying to do. Okay, this orientation thing is right, but we know what God's word says about this issue as well, and so how do we kind of say, well, this isn't entirely wrong, but, and so that's what they're trying to do, and it really is a dangerous place to be because you're, you're making people comfortable with something that God's word says is sin. Um, and what they've done there too is, again, bought into the identity bit, And they've linked with it things that are not associated at all with that sin struggle. Friendship desires, things like that. And that's one of the things we'll talk about. Yeah, that has nothing to do with you being attracted to men. That's a wonderful thing for you to want to have male friendships or female friendships or whatever it is that you're dealing with. That's got nothing to do with this other area of you. But they've married those things together in a way that just is simply... Not true. And this has sway. There's been conferences held. If You might have heard of something called the Revoice Conference. And, and it was all kind of in this camp. And again, I think there are some brothers and sisters there in that. But I think that they're, they're preaching some dangerous things. Um, So the historical approach is what we would hold, that the authority and inspiration of the scriptures, we'd hold the view of historic Christianity, that homosexual behavior and homosexual desires are sinful, that like any other aspect of sin, it does not define us, it is not our identity. Every aspect of it would be disordered if it is against God's ordered design for humanity. Um, So this quote, a person is not absolved of an immoral sexual desire simply because it seems to follow an enduring pattern or an orientation. The enduring nature of same-sex desire is an indication not that God approves such desire, but that we are intractably sinful apart from grace. We stand firmly committed to the position that scriptures teach that homosexual and lesbian uh, orientation and behavior are contrary to the order for human sexuality God placed in creation Hence, they are sinful, um, and that that would be the approach that we would take as well. And then this this bit here, we kind of already talked about, but that blending of the two things together. Um, and Al Moller or Christopher again has a quote here as well about that. Simply put, platonic desires for friendship are not exclusive to, or even stronger in those with same sex attractions. They are affections common to everyone. So, so we want to be careful there. And these are these are really tricky things. I mean, thinking through some of this stuff. And so um, it can be easy to, you know, from pressure, from, you know, we, we need our minds renewed by God's word. It can be easy to, I can see how people have bought into some of the, the neo-traditional viewpoints. Um, and, and honestly, it's a little easier to, to go that route as well. But we don't take the easy road. Um, we want to take the faithful road to God's word. And ultimately, again, God is good, and taking that road is going to be the best thing for everybody. Um, so what is the biblical witness then? Uh, this is what we think, but are we right? Is it, you know, is, is this historical approach, is this correct? So let's look at the scriptures. I give some uh, cultural things here, and I'll say this. You don't need cultural background to understand what What is true about this issue. I include it because it's helpful, but you don't need it. I think if you read the scriptures, you step outside of the cultural moment we're in, it's clear. When we look around at the the natural witness, we'll talk about that in a moment, it's clear God's designed things a certain way, and we shouldn't be afraid to say that. Um, And as we look at the scriptures, it's clear. But It does help us if we look at some of these cultural things, particularly because you're going to come up against people who make some of the arguments like Matthew Vines. Well, Scripture wasn't talking about this or that. It doesn't really say that. Some of these cultural bits can help you feel a little more firm when you say, yes, it does, um, because they're going to throw some of this stuff at you. Paul didn't mean this, or the writers didn't mean that. This is what they meant. So when it comes to the Old Testament, we do have some references to this issue Um, And what Matthew Vine says, the six places where this is talked about, that really is a, a misnomer, would that be the word? Like, the Bible talks about it a lot, like it talks about a lot of issues, even if it's not explicitly talking about it. Again, Scripture talks a lot about human sexuality, so even though, yes explicit references to homosexual practice or um, or the the like is limited. That does not mean it does not speak to the issue. It, it does. It talks to human sexuality a lot. So in the Old Testament, when Old Testament scriptures are being written, kind of what was the, the, the day and age like then? It was a mixed bag. There's a long quote here. I'm not going to read that. You find different things from these different cultures. Uh, there are some cultures that seem to have a lot more of a, a, a full-on to some extent, rejection of homosexual practice and so forth. Uh, certainly with the gender things, you did have some, um, you know, particularly men who would dress up as women and serve in these temples and things like that. But in a societal spectrum, there was a shame attached to dressing up as a, as a woman. In particular. It didn't seem like women were really doing the reverse as much. It was more men to women. Um, but in terms of sexuality, you kind of get this mixed bag. What you do see is a lot of times, especially when there's morality codes and things coming out of these cultures, there would be allowances for it. So actually there was an aspect for men in particular of uh, um, kind of like a you could express your dominance by engaging in this activity over over someone. Um, and where it would be outlawed then was if someone of a lesser social status tried to do that of someone of a higher social status. That's where the problem came into play, not necessarily with the activity itself. So you see that stuff kind of as a mixed bag. Well, what do we see then when we come to the Scriptures? Well, the Scriptures, this, this says, um, this quote here from Robert Agnon, the Levitical laws, however, criminalize not only the behavior of all homosexuals drop it into an argument here all homosexual rapists but also the behavior of both partners in a consensual act of same-sex intercourse they also applied the same sanctions to israelite and resident alien alike and no concessions for homosexual intercourse with a person of unequal social status the level at which the levitical laws stigmatize and criminalize all homosexual intercourse while not discontinuous with some trends elsewhere goes far beyond anything else currently known in the ancient near east so the scriptures do seem to stand out and when we read the scriptures and we look at what's out there in other cultures, it's not making concessions because other cultures did that. It's not speaking to a specific thing. Other cultures did that. It is an outright rejection of this behavior in general. And we see that play out in creation. Um, this quote here, Even though an evaluation of same-sex intercourse is not the point of this creation text, legitima- uh, legitimation for homosexuality requires an entirely different kind of creation story. Male and female are perfect fits from the standpoint of divine design and blessing. Hence, already, the start of the canon and the description of human origins, a justification for male-female union is provided. And um, and we see writers of that day drawing on this. Again, that natural witness drawing on God's creative order and how he designed things. I'm not going to go through these. Noah and Lot, you see that come up. People will talk about that one and there are some tricky things about that one there's stuff to wrestle with there but there definitely is um a condemnation of homosexual behavior the levitical laws which we just talked about you'll see them so when we get then to and i I do want to mention one thing here to the orientation aspect that argument of these guys weren't talking about orientation i like this quote the question of homosexual orientation was surely irrelevant to the denunciation of same-sex intercourse, just as any debate about orientation towards incest or bestiality would have been irrelevant, it was the act that mattered. And that's the way Scripture treats these things. It's not about what you want. That's the whole point. We want to do things that aren't right. So it's not about what you feel like doing, and that makes it okay. No, the whole thing is that we have improper orientations. We want to do things that we shouldn't do. It's all about the act. God is saying... These acts give expression to things that are going on in the heart which aren't good. And and so that is clear. So we see the same thing play out in the New Testament. There's some quotes here from contemporary New Testament, uh, contemporaries to New Testament authors. So these guys aren't necessarily believers or anything. The Jews avoid adultery and indiscriminate or confused intercourse with males. The limits of sexual intercourse are set by nature, not to be transgressed by intercourse between males. These are they that are to be stoned. He that has sexual intercourse with his mother, his father's wife, his daughter-in-law, a male or a beast. Jews, like Greek and Roman critics of same-sex intercourse, reject homosexual conduct on the ground that it was contrary to or against nature. And then this other quote says, you know, they drew evidence from the unique capacity for procreation of heterosexual intercourse, the anatomical complementariness, fittedness of male and female organs, And then they're also drawing from their um, background with what God said about the issue as well. So we see that same thing in the New Testament. So again, there's... there's Not this, well, Paul had something else in mind. Paul wasn't saying, he meant, when he said contrary to nature, what he meant was, if my nature is to like women and I do something different, that's wrong. If my nature is to like men and I do something different, that's wrong. No, that's not, that totally is outside of what we even see that argument being used for historically. If Paul intended that, he used some very strange language to say it. It would not be correcting any kind of thinking in society. It's going right along with what the Jews of the day would have been communicating and thinking. No, they're saying this is contrary to nature. Men are not supposed to be with women. women uh, or men are not supposed to be with men. <laughs> women are not supposed to be with women. They're supposed to be together. Um, so Jesus, he upholds the Levitical laws, moral standards of the Old Testament, and marriage. We see in Romans 1, this aspect of homosexuality serve as a poignant example this quote here from Yagnon a poignant example of human enslavement to passions and god's just judgment precisely because it parallels in the horizontal ethical dimension a kind of <clears throat> denial of god's reality like that of idolatry in the vertical divine dimension So given the meaning of contrary to nature and comparable expressions used by Jewish writers of the period to describe same-sex intercourse, the meaning of the phrase in Paul is quite clear. And again, I think even if you didn't know that, if you read the scriptures and you saw the things that Paul said, it is clear. It's clear even without knowing the background, but the background does just further solidify. Yes, what I'm seeing here, I'm not crazy, right? This is what he seems to be saying. Um, that's true, and then you have this quote about First Corinthians and First Timothy. First Corinthians, Paul uses these two words, which yet again likens back to the Old Testament Leviticus, and what he's doing is he's saying again, there's no exceptions here. Both um, willing partners in a situation like this are engaged in sin. So he uses two terms, kind of like blends them together to say both an active and a passive partner in this situation are worthy of sin, are guilty of sin, and um, And he's trying to be explicit in that. Because again, there were concessions in the culture they were in. He said, well, only, you know, it it was shameful if you were the one who was being acted upon, but not the one doing the acting. Or it's shameful if your society... He says, nope, if you're engaging in this willingly, you are party to sin. Um, And so we see that in the New Testament. So there really is, and I mean, this is a flyby. If you want further, you know, help in some of these texts, I really recommend some of these different resources. And you have a resource list there as well. I think if you're looking for a quick rundown of biblical arguments and just understanding this issue, this is my favorite. I've read a lot of these, all these books at this point. Kevin DeYoung's, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? I think he writes the most clear. uh, Helpfully, he hits on the scriptural arguments for these things. So this is a great resource. It's not very long. If you want a deeper dive than I do, this one's going to give you all, you know. He's, DeYoung's drawing from him here and other writers. This is where, you know, if you really want to deep dive, um, but that's a good one. So that's what the scriptures say. And let's just take a minute to talk about the natural witness. Again, I remember growing up, I haven't heard it, thankfully, in a long time, you know, God made Adam and Eve. He didn't make Adam and Steve. That's not a helpful phrase. <laughs> um, but I think in some of our desire to kick back against the unhelpful things that have been said, we do forget, no, there 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 still is this argument we should be able to make of the natural witness of things, too. This is not how we're designed to be. Um, And so I wanted to talk about that briefly. Uh, You know, Scripture is our source and standard bearer for truth, but nature itself testifies to God, and it can be beneficial to observe its testimony to the truths that we read about in the scriptures. So in terms of origins of desire, you know, for a long time, and really this has faded— because it's just not true, but for a long time it was about, you know, I was born this way, this is this is how God made me. You don't really hear that as much now, because it is about, well, it's what I want to be, it's what I want to do, and the proponents of this know that human sexuality, even these gender expressions and feelings, any studies into them show that it really is a fluid spectrum. There's not this concrete, yep, you know, we can pin this or that. People express themselves in a lot of ways, and these things change over time and engage. So what we see is more of this, if you're on the nature versus nurture, you know, more of the nurture side of of this, kind of the cultural, you know, influences and our behaviors being influenced by those things. And this quote here just says, science has not yet discovered any genetically dictated behavior in humans. So that means there's no gene in our body that makes you order Pizza Hut. There's no gene in our body that makes you... We have things that can predispose us to maybe think certain ways or whatnot, but we still are active agents. And there's no gene ever identified that says, you will, you know, at 9 a.m., get up and go get your cup of coffee. There's, there, it's not like that. We are active agents making decisions about what we do. Um, and what studies find is that there is a lot more influence uh, than what we even probably would care to admit on our behavioral patterns. But even if, even if we found there was some genetic, you know, you, you're born, you are born gay, or um, you're born predisposed, you're, you're born a serial killer. You know, th- there's this gene that they're looking for of these sociopaths. And even if that were true, that does not then make it right. As believers, we do believe that we are corrupt in nature, body and spirit. Sin has corrupted everything. And so even if that genetic link were there, that does not then make something right. Because again, again, the arguments are there for alcoholism or there for uh, these aggressive behaviors. But we're not saying those things are right either. We know that even if our body says do this, it doesn't always mean we should do it um so there are environmental influences i have a few things here i'm not going to go into these but there's things that studies have shown do have effects i do want to say um when it comes to the effects of our parents you know i think for a long time there was you know well the way the mother behaves towards the boy is is really going to cause this outcome or, or so forth um we do affect each other but we also don't want to lay that at anyone's feet in this heavy-handed way of saying, well, you caused this in, you know, in someone else. So we don't want to deny the influence we have on each other and those effects. Uh, but at the same time, we're not looking for some smoking gun on any of us, our behavior and saying, well, you, because you did this or you treated me this way or X, Y, or Z, that's why I do this other thing. Um, so we want to be careful with that. We don't want to lay that at someone's feet um, in that way. Um, But I also, the last thing I want to say about the natural witness is it's so hard when you hear people saying, you know, this is right, this is good, this is healthy. Again, nature screams, no, it's not. And it does not promote human flourishing. So folks who engage in homosexual behavior, this list here, have a significantly decreased likelihood of establishing and preserving a successful marriage. A 25 to 30 year decrease in life expectancy. Chronic, potentially fatal liver disease, infectious hepatitis, which increases the risk of liver cancer. Inevitably fatal immune disease, including associated cancers, frequently fatal rectal cancer, multiple bowel and other infectious diseases, much higher than usual incidence of suicide. And that's not just linked to rejection. Even in the societies where it's most welcomed, there's still this really high link to suicide in folks who are dealing with this because your body's at war you've got a system that's designed to do one thing and you're feeling another. And we have compassion for that. A lot of people did not just choose. I can say from my testimony, I didn't wake up one day and say, well, I want to be attracted to boys. I didn't. And, and so these people, you have this experience of being at war with yourself. What we want to do is we want to help people realize the solution's not to further that war. The solution is to work to bring these things together as God designed and to bring healing. Um, and so, and then, I mean, I don't have any of the stats here for gender issues, but these surgeries, these things, they are physically damaging, and they are destroying bodies. It is not health. And, and in most situations, it's not helping the mental health either in the end. It's, it's not healthy. So the natural witness is such, we clearly were designed in a certain way. God set it up to work a certain way. And then as with all other sin, if you engage in what God has not designed, there's a lot, a lot of negative aspects to that as well. So we want to hold fast to that. that We're not just trying to tell people this is, this is what we're supposed to do. No, we're saying there's a God of the universe who loves you and who has designed us to live a certain way. And, and part of that is how we're supposed to engage sexually. And he has good for you. And ultimately, your health will be better across the spectrum, mental, physical, spiritual, if you follow what God has designed. Um, so I want to quickly run through them, just some, a, a list of faithful convictions for us as we approach this. One, scripture is the word of God, our final authority in all matters. Two, God created men and women to glorify him in their differences and their commonalities. Three, God instituted marriage to be between one man, one woman, that they might glorify God through their emotional, physical, and spiritual union by reflecting the glory of the gospel and creating further image bearers. Next, sex can only properly be enjoyed within the covenant bonds of marriage. All else is dishonoring to God and stands in sinful opposition to him. Not only is committing sexual sin with our bodies a, uh, sexual sin, with our bodies a sin, but to desire sexual sin in our inward being is also a sin. Before God. And that's again where we're a little different from that, very different from that neo traditional approach. We are to actively resist sin and flee sexual immorality. Next, homosexuality in all its internal and external forms is sin and stands in rebellious opposition to God's good design for gender, marriage, and sex. Next, homosexual desires do not provide a basis for identity, are not immutable, and can be transformed. And then a life lived for the kingdom of God is worth any and every sacrifice. Uh, I want to quickly go through, I know my time's running down here, so I want to I quickly go through some of these, these items, just things that we need to be thinking about, and then I want us to talk for the last few minutes here about caring for uh, individuals who are dealing with uh, same-sex attraction, who are dealing with uh, gender issues. One, what terms to use. So I give some things here. I stay away from queer, gay, gay, Christian, those have built into them identity aspects. They've got some quotes here. Those words have been used specifically to try and destigmatize the issue. Um, and so, I, I mean, I've said gay a couple times in this message in the appropriate context where people know what I mean by it. I will use it. You know, if I'm talking to Happy and I say, yeah, I met this gentleman, he he was gay. She knows I don't mean he was born a homosexual person whose identity is rooted into that. She knows I mean someone who's choosing to walk in that lifestyle, uh, someone who's, you know, expressing themselves that way. But in general, I don't use that term, especially with people who don't know what I mean when I say it. Um, Lesbian, homosexual, homosexual orientation. I think these are better, but again, you just want to make sure what you're saying and how you're saying it, and do the people know what you mean when you say it? (coughs) Um, You know, uh, is that identity bit uh, wrapped up in that because those two can carry that orientation. So I, I tend to like to use homosexuality, same-sex attraction, particularly when talking about believers. This same-sex attraction really is only used in Christian circles. You don't really find that at all in writing outside of that, and it was a way of developing how do we, how do we speak about this, speak to this without those kind of co-opted terms. So I like to use those. Um, I don't, and I'll talk about this in a minute. If you're talking to someone who's actively in this lifestyle, now you aren't you know, this is where we just have to use discernment. But you're not going to want to say to them, "Oh, you're you're you know same-sex attracted, or you you struggle with homosexuality." That's not going to be a helpful thing to say, right? You know, to them in that moment, because um, to them it is th- their identity. It is this or that, and so that's where we use a lot of discernment. How do we navigate those conversations? We don't want to affirm what they're thinking, but we also don't want to just throw out terms that are going to like offend them right away either. And so how do we how do we walk through those conversations well? Um, and then some people like to use other things, unwanted homosexual desires, unnatural desires, so forth. Those are good, helpful. I think they can throw up some walls in conversations. Um, so uh, we want to think about that. I'm, I'm going to skip over this Next, I'm not going to go into this deep, uh, the, the sin and temptation bit. Just something to know, as you help people, if you're dealing with this issue, one of the things you're going to wrestle with, it does feel so tied to your identity. You know, is every bit of me in sin? Uh, you know, and the, the neo-traditional is trying to deal with this question a little bit, and they don't do it well. Um, but there is a reality that you can be tempted without sin. So we want to encourage our, our brothers and sisters who are dealing with this issue just the aspect that you might feel some temptation does not mean you've given yourself over to sin. Does not mean you're just walking around sinning all the time. Now, there's a fine line. We, you know, we don't know our hearts. So you might, be, you might be giving in to those thoughts a lot. But the fact that something's come at you, there can be an external temptation there. We want to have compassion. And we want to help them not feel like you know, every... Uh, it is true, every ounce of us is corrupted, and, and there's a reality there. But we want to treat them as we treat other brothers and sisters who are struggling with sin, and we don't look at all of us and say, well, yeah, you know, you were, oh, you, you had to resist an urge to, to be angry. I be like, you are just, you know. So, no, it's so we want to be careful in how we relate to people over that issue as well. Is homosexuality worse, sexuality worse sin than others? Yes, there is a truth to that, and no, in how we relate two people in that to some extent. So we don't want to be afraid to say that there are some things that God looks at that are more heinous. He calls it an abomination in the Old Testament. He doesn't say that about a lot of other things. And it's because it gives a particular expression to a rejection of God. Um again, we have that, you have that strong natural witness that's standing there saying, this is what God has designed. And so not only have you chosen to do what God doesn't want, but you've chosen to do it in light of this very obvious um, picture of what God's designed. So there is a reality in this quote from Kevin DeYoung's Helpful. I encourage you to read it. We don't want to be afraid to say that if, if that's true. There are, th- you know, someone in a, in a fit of passion pushing another person and them hitting their head, you know, they, they, they murdered them, and that is sin, and it's wrong. But there is a difference there between that and Hitler and what he did. And and we look at those things, and God looks at those things, and, and there is a heightened expression of rebellion against God. So there's a truth to that about this sin. That's why Paul uses it in Romans 1. Now, that said, we don't look at it, though, and stand as, well, you... You know, are this worse sinner than I am? Because the reality is, many of us have probably engaged in sins that are high on that list as well. Um, you know, if we've uh, hated someone in our heart, God calls it murder. Uh, that's different than acting on it. But these things are all heinous. So we're talking about, you know, when we're talking about the differences in weight of sin, it, it's it's that whole kind of almost like rearranging the chairs on the Titanic. Like it's all it's all sin. And so as we're relating to people, we're not relating out of that reality, particularly as we're relating to the world on that. Now, brothers and sisters in the church, yeah, you are going to relate more firmly to someone who's wanting to give themselves over in that than someone who maybe is a little slovenly with their, you know, a little lazy, and you're not going to kick them, you know, you're not going to kick them in the butt, you know, but you are going to give a firm conviction and and want to develop a firm conviction in someone who's going down this path because it is a serious sin um all sin serious but it is something that is an open outward rebellion against god um that when given full expression is is extremely destructive in the life of a a human being now that said we're going to find as culture goes more and more this way there's gonna be more and more people who go that way um So to some extent, that degree is almost lessened because it's just all around and that natural witness is muted a little bit. But we just have to be careful how we relate to that, but we also don't want to be afraid to say what's true and that that God does, you know, see this as an abomination. All right, I'm like, at time, I'm going to go through, Rob, I'm going to take like five to ten more minutes to talk about some of these things. Is that fine? Okay, yeah, and I know this is where a lot of people have thoughts, and we'll get some of this in the panel discussion as well. So it is really important. I know this is where everyone's like, okay, so now what do I do with all of this? All of that other stuff is extremely important, though, for us to understand those things, to know how to think through those things, and communicate those things. So I hope that's helpful. Um, I'm sure there's tons of questions, because I had to move really fast through those things. I hope you extend grace to me uh, in things that I said and assume the best of what I meant uh, in some of the things that I said. So I like these quotes, Christians will once again need to master their courage to be radically countercultural. This issue, I will say, it is, we're all being put on the spot on this issue in particular. And I think unless something shifts, it's only going to get more dramatic um, because it's becoming a human, humanitarian issue. And, uh, and understandably so. If you have a different worldview, and this is the same thing to a human being as their skin color, then I understand why you think, you know, this is a wicked thing to say this is wrong. We understand something very different by God's grace and his word, so they're wrong in that, but they're going to vehemently oppose. You know, God's word says that they will call what is evil good and Good, evil, and and so they'll be opposed. So we have to have the courage to be radically countercultural, and they will once again need to be prepared to minister to the victims of sexual abuse and predation, those wounded by the sexual revolution. They must do the hard work of making a case for the beauty of the biblical sex ethic. And that's something where I think we do all need to do the hard work. Why does God say this? Is this good? Because we don't want to just say, well, God says that's wrong. No, we want to say, this is what God has designed, and this is what is good for us with both their words and their lives, Christians must once again become known as those who honor the whole person. The reason they speak out on moral issues should not be because their beliefs are being threatened or because they feel offended, I'd add, because they feel uncomfortable. They should erase the word offended from their vocabulary. After all, Christians are called to share in the offense of the cross. This is not about us. Uh, I love that quote. Um, Christians who want to explain the Christian faith to gay friends need to know What the Bible says about homosexuality is not the only thing they need to explain, and it's probably not the first thing or even the main thing that they need to focus on. People need to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And in a mixed-up culture that's mixed up in so many ways, it's not going to be sorted out until they know that Jesus is the Son of God who came to seek and save the lost, and that there's a God of the universe who loves them and has a desire And a plan for all things. So, I want to walk through some of these things, helpful things on how do we relate. This comes from Christopher Yuan. Uh, He is a gentleman who has dealt with this in his life. This is a helpful book. His perspective, one of the things he focuses on a lot is, and again, hear what I'm saying and not saying. The goal is not heterosexuality. It is. We want people to be healed, but the goal is holiness And communion with the God of the universe. So we're not just looking to make heterosexual people out of folks who have given themselves over to homosexuality. And he really focuses on that in a very helpful way. Because there can be that. Because that really leaves someone. If that's the goal, there's a lot of folks who are going to come to know God who don't experience the same kind of change as some other people might. Or the same, just as all of us. We have lingering sins. We have things that, that, that last and persist. And so if that's the goal how disappointing and the weight that's put on someone when they don't see the change they're hoping for and they think, well, if, but that was the ultimate goal and I didn't achieve it. No, the ultimate goal is honoring God and knowing him and repent, living a life of repentance and faithfulness to him. Um, So don't compare same-sex relationships to other sins. So these are helpful tools when you're talking to someone in particular who is engaged in this lifestyle these are just some like, you, you're you probably going to shut someone off really fast if you do this. So comparing it to other sins, comparing it to, if you jump right to comparing it to murder, or comparing it to other things, even back to that, use you know, it worse than others? You're going to shut someone down really fast if you start doing those things. Don't use lifestyle or choice again. I'm not saying don't ever use, it. he's not saying don't ever use these things, but as you're engaging with someone, just know you're going to you're going to shut them down probably really fast or create an argument you're probably not wanting to step into at that point in time if you're using those terms with them. Because to them, it's not a choice. It's not like this is who they are. And so you're going to shut them down really fast. Don't debate all the time. One of the biggest things we can do is just listen Let someone share their, I mean, we do this in evangelism in other ways. Just listen to a person's experience. Bridge does this, Jim does this, and you all who've helped with Bridge do this wonderfully. You know, it like makes my skin crawl. I've never actually helped with Bridge, but the thought of sitting in a group and hearing all these like, (laughs) theologically kind of, you know, like, what are these people saying? And just sitting there letting them talk. I'm like, I want to correct everything. You know, we have to be willing to just sit and listen and know that this is probably going to be a long process of working through with this person. Maybe you don't say anything in that first conversation, really. You know, you just, thank you for sharing all that with me. And I'm glad to get to know you. And, and as the conversations progress, you start to go down that path as you're interacting with them. Listen, be intentional, be patient, be persistent, be transparent. We need to be people who are humble. We need to be people who openly acknowledge we're broken. We're disordered. We need the God of the universe to fix and correct us, first and foremost. Um, Kevin DeYoung, he has these 10 commitments. If we're speaking to cultural elites who despise us and our beliefs, we want to be bold and courageous. So we don't want to shy away from God's truth on this. If we're speaking to strugglers who fight against same-sex attraction, we want to be patient and sympathetic. If we're speaking to sufferers who've been mistreated by the church, we want to be winsome and humble. If we're speaking to the shaky Christians who seem ready to compromise the faith for society's approval, we want to be persuasive and persistent. If we're speaking to those who are living as the scriptures would not have them live. We want to be straightforward and earnest. If we're speaking to belligerent Christians who hate or fear persons who identify as gay or lesbian, we want to be clear and corrective. So, again, as we're interacting with this, there is no smoking gun of this is what you do in this situation. This is what you do in that. So it, it, this is we're on our knees asking the Lord for help in each conversation we're entering into with folks, and because. We, we're doing that all the time. But again, on an issue like this where identity is so melded together with this, it's hard. You know, someone who's an alcoholic or struggling with other things, they might not have a ton of conviction about it, but they don't—that's not their identity. That's not how they view themselves. So you're not going to have that same kind—you can, but it's just not the same kind of thing. We have to be really careful and discerning, and patient, and humble, and think through, what does this situation call for? What does this situation call for? Because you got someone who's sitting there recognizing they've got an issue. You're not, you're not going to approach them the same way as yeah, a hot-headed, belligerent person who, you know, we don't want to, we don't just have a blanket response to every person. And then some additional thoughts on caring for individuals. These come from from my head, <laughs> but take them or leave them. Again, keep the gospel—don't take—don't don't leave this one. Take this one. Keep the gospel at the center. You want to you keep that one. Uh, keep the gospel at the center. Again, we said this, but what these people need is—what all of us need is Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We need to know God loves us. God created this world for a purpose. We've all fallen away, and we all need his grace to come back to him. So we're keeping that at the center. Help them see we've all got to turn from things. Be humble. Um, don't try and knock down the wall all at once. Do it brick by brick. This was something that was a, very helpful to me as a young man dealing with this. It was counsel I received. You know, it just felt like, here's this issue I'm dealing with. It seems huge and insurmountable to me. and I don't know what to do about it. And a, a faithful friend of mine just reminding me of, all of us are a web of, you know, issues and sin woven together. And these things all feed into each other. And so just be working. I mean, obviously be Resisting and, and turning from this area, but as god 's working on pride in your heart, be dealing with that as God and i 've seen that as these other bricks of things of just the wall of sin you know are dealt with in my heart it 's helped that area, and so god 's brought healing in that area as I dealt with jealousy, as I dealt with pride, as I dealt with all these different things in my life that weren 't just this fruit that was being expressed over here, so remember, we are a mix of desires and um, causes to the things that we do. Um, Recognize past experiences, we talked about this a little bit, aren't our focus, but they do have shaping influences, so we don't want to throw out, we don't want to reject talking to someone about what their experience was like at home and how that might have affected how they're feeling, but at the same time, we don't place that on a pedestal as that's going to solve everything or identify (coughs) why everything's going on that's going on. Set realistic expectations, God, you know, I know there are stories out there of God doing this and changing something overnight that does not at all seem to be the norm as with most sin struggles in our lives. And so realistic expectations for folks that this might take time, probably will. It's going to be a hard, long, messy process, but that's all of us as we're working and walking with the Lord. Um, As we said, heterosexual desire is not the ultimate goal, holiness is. And I'd say hold out a hope for change. I do get frustrated though when I hear kind of the only thing put out there is like, and God can give you strength to live the celibate life. There's a hope for more than that. And God does redeem. And I've seen it in my life. And he brings healing and he brings change and he brings redemption. So we do, we want to set realistic expectations. It may not happen, but at the same time, I'm hoping for you that God does a work in your life. And let's continue to walk this path out. Just the same as we do with someone who struggles with being single and has wanted to be married or someone who wanted a child. I have hope for you God could do this, but we don't know he will for sure. And so let's walk through it, you know, this way as well. So I'm going to do that. Another thing, encourage healthy friendships with the same sex. Um, this was very important to me. Uh, and I think it is very important for folks to, to develop strong bonds. Um, it was important for me to know I'm, I'm a guy and it's good to relate to other guys. And um, so to, to develop and cultivate those healthy expressions of those friendships is really important. Uh, this this next one, again, this is one of these, hear what I'm saying and try and understand what I'm saying. Don't let culturally defined gender items further the problem, color choices, and so forth. I'm not saying these things don't matter. They do, and our culture expresses things a certain way. But there are certain things where we can push people to feel like they aren't a boy, they aren't a girl because they don't happen to like football or because this boy wants to dance. Like there is a way those things can be engaged with. We have certain lines that have been drawn in our society and we, this is a whole other discussion and how that comes into play. But we don't want to push people into these identities because they feel like, well, I can't be a girl who likes to rough and tumble or I can't be a boy who likes artistic expression more than an aggressive sport. We want to be careful about that. We want to tread that lightly because we want to affirm their gender. We want to affirm that you are a boy, you are a girl, and hey, you know what? Yeah, boys and girls do a lot of different kinds of things. And so we want to be very careful as we're walking that line not to push people further away from who they are and drawing lines that Scripture doesn't, you know, doesn't draw. Um, So affirm the maleness and femaleness. And then just ensure discipleship and accountability in place for those who are struggling. So we want to be walking with people. This is something that's going to feel very big to somebody uh, as they're trying to walk through this. And they're going to need a lot of help, um, as we all do again. Um, So just some final thoughts. What's at stake in all of this? Well, as Christians, in terms of on Christian compromise, a lot is at stake. We really cannot waver on this issue. The moral logic of monogamy is at stake. If we say, well, God doesn't really care, um, he does. He cares deeply. The integrity of Christian sexual ethics is at stake because, again, the logic that underpins this whole argument really destroys all of God's design for human sexuality, sexual expression, and glorifying God with our bodies in that way. Authority of the Bible is at stake quite clearly. Again, we see that as folks progress into this um, liberal view. Grand narrative scripture is at stake. God has rooted and stake that, that marriage between a man and a woman is a picture of Christ and the church. And so to compromise on this issue, I mean, really is to step into quite holy ground. Um, this is the, the, one of the most significant earthly expressions, a visible reminder of what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. So to denigrate that is, is no small thing. And experientially, what's at stake? There's going to be lives of men and women who are ravished by this sin. And I know some folks in this room who are watching loved ones walk through that and deal with that issue. Um, We're going to have friends. We're going to have neighbors, coworkers, relatives who are dealing with this. And we need to know how to care for them. Believers are going to be tempted to crumble under societal pressure and endorse what God detests. And I will just say this. I like to give this charge. If you do not deal with this issue know what God's Word says, remain convicted of that, and be strong in that. Because your brother and sisters who do deal with this issue, it's going to be, you think it's hard to stand up under society's pressure. Imagine how hard it is for them when their bodies are also telling them that they want to do, they want to give in to this. So be strong for your brothers and sisters. Uh, you, you fighting for truth in this area is is helping them, you know, as they seek to fight truth for truth in this area. So, your brothers and sisters who deal with this need you to be resolved on this issue. They need you to help carry the banner. Uh, and increasing approval of this is going to lead to increasing numbers of those who engage in this, and we need to we need to be ready for that. So I know I ran long. That's a lot of stuff. Um, we're going to have time for the discussion. I hope those things are helpful, and we'll continue to engage here.
1: Thank you, brother, for how you have have served us so well in this. I, As a pastor, when I think about this issue, here's a, a thought that I want to, to say. I, and I think it's important for all Christians to, to think along these lines. It's to consider where are we as the people of God and as the church of Christ most vulnerable to not being faithful to what God has called us to be. And putting the accent there... Um, Rather than on, you know, I think some Christians may live here, uh, how bad is the world, you know, on these issues? Mm-hmm. Um, we know the answer to that, really, really bad. You know, things, uh, things are bad, and they're, and they're getting worse. And I think it can be really easy to have a church that arrives at, um, um, at a posture of, of judgment. I'm reminded of what Paul says at the end of First Corinthians 5, Uh, where he says, uh, he he says, I exhort you not to associate with the sexually immoral. But then he says, "I'm, I'm not speaking of unbelievers, because then you would need to get out of the world. That's not possible. Rather, I'm speaking of the church. He says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? So, There's a really important principle here of... We need to stand, and I think and this is why I so appreciate, Nick, what you've done, is because I think the leading way that Christians in our cultural moment are in, are going to be inclined to not be faithful is to abandon the truth of God's word, Yeah, is to abandon clear biblical convictions that say, here I stand. And I think a, a close, I just want to share this as a, as a pastoral burden, because it is, I'm, I'm thinking about, okay, how... Where, where are we as a church at? Where are people at? Where are we vulnerable? I think a, cl- a close second to that, because I do believe that in our circles, most people are saying, okay, this is, I believe this is what scripture teaches, but the need for courage in our engagement is also something that I want to highlight and underline, and I think that there can be a tendency as Christians to be so eager to not offend that we never get around to plainly speaking the truth of God's word uh, to those who need to, need to hear it. And so I want to, there can be a sort of misapplied compassion that even looks at uh, plain statements of the truth as what you've done to, as, oh, okay, well, how will that land on these people? Well, we, it, it will not land well on those who reject the truth of God. And, uh, and I think that we need to anticipate that. A couple of other, I mean, you, you touched on these. A pastoral concern that I would have is the tendency to a lack of compassion that we always need to be on guard against, uh, that, that, um, th- that we are called to love, we're called to be a people of love, we're called to love our enemies, and we are, are called to love those who are, uh, who are, who are lost in sin. Um, and then to be a people of hope as well, I want to to, to, to say, because there can be uh, on these particular issues, and understandably, uh, but I think there can be a tendency to, to outrage and to fear mm-hmm. that is uh, not befitting the people of God who are to be a people of hope. I, um, the late Carl Henry once said that the early church did not say what is the world coming to? They said, look what has come into the world. Namely, look who has come into the world, Christ. And that was the, the center of their, of their engagement. And so those are just a couple of pastoral categories that I want to highlight from what, um, what Nick shared. Let me hear, from, there's a specific question that I want to uh, have you guys speak to. And that is, um, because so much of this cultural moment is sadly and tragically targeting children, how can parents disciple our children in these matters? Mm-hmm. Um, what age? What approach? What does it mean for parents to be faithful? Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. You sure. Here you
2: go. Um, the the first thing that comes to mind is the question in, uh, itself. The burden of raising kids in this time should make us uh, greater prayers than we've ever been. Uh, I know that the question is asking for more than that, but not less than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, on top of that, I do think it's important that we come to terms with the fallacy of outcome-based parenting. If we just do certain things, it'll always generate the same result. Mm-hmm. Um, it was always a facade. Uh, it's just now it's kind of obvious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so so I... I what, ask your question again.
1: I'm drifting into pastoral categories, uh, but I want to answer your question. <laughs> no, it's excellent. The two things you mentioned okay. are entirely appropriate for what yeah. we can do as parents. Okay. Uh, right. and, for, and specifically, how should parents think about discipling their kids? Yeah. I mean, I think about this with, with uh, my kids at every age. Yes. And I'm thinking, okay, what does it mean for me as I'm engaging, you know, in eight, nine year old on these things is it appropriate to talk about them what age and then what does that look like
2: yeah the, the the last thing i would say then on that and then i may drift into that pastoral category i was trying to avoid um is uh what you do with your kids with school will will often inform how you have to answer some of those questions mm-hmm. uh there's a i think any school choice that you choose is going to have its pluses and its minuses attached to it. Just look soberly at those. Uh, if you're sending your kids into a school environment where this is part of the agenda, where this is being raised in health class in first grade or something like that, then, then you may have to surrender the dream you had of having the talk with your kids when they're 15. <laughs> right,
1: which probably wasn't a great dream <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, if you're saying, you know what, because of of the way this is such an agenda in certain schools, I'm going to keep my kids out of those schools, then at some point you're going to need a strategy to really equip your kids in this mm-hmm. because they will be entering a world they are not ready for, yep. okay, that's not to. To, to put one school choice above the, the other, just recognize the, the the downfalls of the option you choose and disciple to strengthen
0: those mm-hmm. i 'll stop there I, thoughts that come come to my mind would be one, we do have a, a a task now as parents that previous generations have not had in what is a Man and a woman what is a boy and a, I mean that 's been assumed for a very long time. we, we can 't just assume that now, and so that 's one thing for us as parents and, and those caring for kids and we need to have a firm conviction about these things and understand yeah what is it? We need to wrestle with these things so that we can then help our kids who are being told about this so there 's some hard work for us to dig into god 's word and, and to to think about these things. The other thing is just i mean it, it, as with all matters discipleship of your kids help asking them questions you know what things have they hurt you come away from something you see someone what did you think about that and do you have questions about that and sharing with them um we have to be intentional we have to be intentional and, and, and walking through those moments and we can't shelter these kids are encountering this and they're having these conversations and we should be thankful not thankful i mean we should be thankful because it's in the world, our kids have opportunities when they come so that we can now step into that with them and talk to them about it. I mean, we're not thankful it exists. We wish sin didn't exist in the world. But when those, you could see those as, oppor- rather than fearing, so this is an opportunity now for me to bring some teaching to this moment. And the last thing I would say, and it goes to what you, you said, Jared, but um, helping your kids, again, this make a, a beautiful picture of the biblical ethic and why is it good to be a boy and a girl and why is it good that sex is, designed this way. We we need that in our hearts to know why God says that. We want to help our kids see that. And that, yeah, it's not right, this other thing either. And I remember we had neighbors, uh, who, we had this lesbian couple next to us, next door to us, and we we're talking to Anna about it, and we're trying to help her not, you know, be like, oh, she's interacting with them. But as I'm doing that, I'm also being careful what you said. We don't want to go so far the other direction, though. So we said, Anna, it's good and right that you feel like that's Strange, because it is strange. It's not right, and so we want to affirm that it is that is right. It sh- you shouldn't be comfortable with that. But then you're in, you're introducing that grace component too. Okay, but how do you interact with that? This isn't right. So now what do we do? So affirming those things at the same time, helping your kids see yeah, this is not right, and don't be afraid of that in the sake of making you know we, we want to be graceful to people. We want to be make sure you're you're helping them see what's yeah what's yeah, true. It's not. Can I come back to the pastoral category I've been trying to avoid?
2: I just can't get it off my heart, so I think the Lord wants me to say it. It's very important, as with all discipleship of our kids, that that we keep in mind that we are called to be faithful in discipling them without being fully responsible for what they do with it. Mm -hmm. And in this issue in particular... The category of parental failure, what could I have done that could have avoided this? Mm -hmm. What did we do wrong that had this kid turn out the way they are Mm -hmm. right now? Uh, We we need to remember that we're not called to be fruit producers in our kids' lives. Mm -hmm. We're called to be investors in our kids' lives. But ultimately, they have volition to follow God or not. And so the degree to which in this issue of what can we do in discipling our kids, it's important we feel the weight of that, Mm -hmm. but not the 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 one for one responsibility Mm -hmm. in what the kids do with that. And that's across the board. It carries in this area a particular stigma and weight that that it would be my desire that that people really cast that on Jesus Mm -hmm. and just look to be faithful. In this,
1: I have a a pastoral burden along with that and a desire that parents not be behind the world Mm -hmm. in these things. Uh, As the world is seeking to indoctrinate uh, children, it's imperative that Christians seek to do what we can to look to have conversations with our kids. Marty Machowski has written a wonderful book, uh, God Made Boys and Girls, I believe it's called. That's a wonderful introduction at a very young age yeah. to issues of gender. I commend that that type of thing. Uh, my concern is that, that through culture at large, I mean, and I say this as a dad who has uh, young kids who are in their school context, being asked about preferred pronouns and these sorts of, you know, okay. if I'm not having conversations with my kids, the world is going to be discipling them. Um, okay. Social media is a major component of what is discipling our children. And so I just yeah. want to encourage, without uh, instilling any sense of of guilt in parents and without uh, and, and with the recognition that we all fall short of God's standard. Yeah. To, I, I, my desire is for parents to be proactive mm-hmm. uh, in this area from a, a young age mm-hmm. uh, in, in discipling their kids and to have that as a category. And then to have fellowship with others of what does this look like mm-hmm. for, for you and uh, how do you invest in your kids. Let me take, uh, we just have some time to take uh, questions from some of you. So yes.
2: Before you go, Lauren, uh, just because we're, we're going to go long because, because Nick told me he was. Gonna, I'm going to be 45 minutes. And <laughs> I that, said maybe 50. That didn't happen. I went um, so. Uh I, I hope you all stay for all of the questions. Okay, but if you need to go, I want to make sure that you hear this. Um, Covenant Fellowship uh, has has launched a support group for parents who have children or adult children who are struggling with with sexual identity issues, or with gender issues. Uh, it has been spearheaded wonderfully and graciously by Blake and Sherry Stair. Uh, and and the goal, I'm just gonna read what he put here, the, uh, the goal is to support and pray for one another as you seek to continue relating with your children. Um, if you are interested in learning more about that, Reach out to the church with that question. We'll get it right over to Blake. And uh, the next scheduled meeting that they have is after the new year, January 22nd. It'll follow the service across the parking lot at the Marshall House. Okay, any other questions about that? You can certainly ask them here, but just shoot an email to the church, and we'll make sure you get what you need. Okay? All right, Lauren, thanks and for And we're looking
1: at what we plan to do here is 10 or 15 minutes of questions, so we definitely won't go past 845. Um but it will leave some time for questions here. Yes? Question.
0: Yeah, so, yeah. So the question is basically how do we interact, if I'm getting this right, like how do we interact with um, behaviors that aren't sinful but maybe don't happen in society? to ladies holding hands. I know, and I've never been there, but I know in African culture, some places, guys walk down the street holding hands and those kinds of things. How do we? Disciple those moments with our kids. Um, yeah, how do we relate to those? How do we relate to those things? And how do we speak to those things? Or your son having a, a crush, but really it's just, you know, a, um, admiration for someone ahead. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that is that would be likening to what I was trying to kind of summarize at the end there of affirming what we can affirm um, in our children of the male femaleness of them that, yeah, no, like, two girls can hug, and that doesn't mean you're interested in a girl sexually. And two you know, as a boy, like, oh, you, you really admire this other guy? Like, that's, that's not a problem, uh, you know, and it's not a problem, <laughs> you know. And um, so I, I think there is certainly room for that, of affirmation. Now, it is tricky when you're in, a, and again, this is a bigger thing, but, you know, thinking through again, you know, it's like, In Scotland, men wear kilts. You know, here we don't wear any kind of skirt thing. And and it does communicate something if you do. So we do have to navigate the realities of cultural norms. And how do we interact with our kids on that? Like, okay, yeah, in some places they might hold hands or kiss or whatever. And it's totally platonic. Communicate something very different in our culture, though. So I do think we have to broach that if we're having that conversation with them. Of Like, it's not wrong in itself to hold hands with your friend. That doesn't mean you... But in our culture, it does communicate something. So we don't generally do that. And um, so you do have to talk about those things. Because if you just say, like, that's not wrong, your kid's going to face people then who are telling them, like, oh, well, you must love her or you must whatever, you know. So we do have to engage with the aspects of our culture. We just, we aren't like it used to be. and, And we aren't like Africa or we aren't like whatever in these ways. And so helping our kids understand that, like, that's not sinful, but we don't express things that way as a society, and it communicates something, so we have to really think through that as we interact with others. and So I think that's important.
2: The other thing on that, uh, Lauren, I think you're dead on that our culture has hypersexualized yeah. everything. And what we're at risk of losing are really deep, intimate friendships yeah. between men, or really deep, intimate friendships between woman- women. Um, you know, there's, there's the example though the wonderful friendship that we see in the Old Testament of David and Jonathan. But that's been read back as, oh, they must have been sexually. No, no, that's something that, that we're taking now and putting on a close friendship. And I, I do desire that we fight hard for that ground for our kids to be able to have very close friendships Friendships where time away may bring heartache. You know, that, that, and that, that, that's not the separation of two lovers. That's just the separation of dear friends. Uh, it has existed for millennia, and because of how hyper-sexualized it is, it's just assumed, well, if I feel that kind of connection to somebody, someone, I don't feel sexual, but it must be. So, and, and we just, I want to fight hard for that ground for our kids, because yeah. the, the culture's not going to stake that ground
0: out for them. Yeah. I had another thought, too, even, again, specifically thinking about some of the gender stuff. Like, it is, yeah, really, taking time, I think what you did was wonderful, asking, well, what do you mean by that? Like, yes. what do you, like, taking the time to ask those questions, because if you've got a girl who's like, I hate dresses and, you know, all this stuff, you, you don't want to just jump to an assumption of, like, well, they want to be a boy. Like ask like why you know why you they're so uncomfortable you know I right? just I want to move or I want to do whatever that's a totally different issue that we're dealing with there right. you know and so taking that those moments to ask questions to understand where a kid because if, if the girl doesn't like pink that doesn't mean anything like pink is just this culture that you know in our culture again you got to talk through these things with your kids but it doesn't necessarily mean they're rejecting God's ordinance of them as a female. And we don't want to push them into that because to us that triggers, oh, well, oh my gosh, she's struggling with her sexuality because she doesn't want anything pink in her room and she really likes blue. And she just may like the color blue. And so asking those questions and working through those things and and again having those conversations in our society, just so you know, I mean, people are going to think you're, you know, maybe... A little strange because you don't like this color, but I understand it's just a color thing, so you're working on that, you know, whatever it is. But we ask the questions, and we work through those yeah. things.
1: Good. Other <laughs> questions? Other questions? Yes. Yeah. Yes. How can—it's a great question. How can a public school student uh, who will be ridiculed and marginalized even for being a Christian mm-hmm. who is engaging these— issues on a daily basis, yeah. faithfully do so. What what thoughts and encouragements would you give?
2: Yeah. I would say just do whatever your father says.
0: Yeah, listen to your dad.
2: If you couldn't see it, it's my daughter yeah. who asked the, the question.
0: Um, the thing that comes to mind for me, again, is this uh, kind of to the quotes of not... The first thing, or the most important thing, you know, necessarily that we're jumping to with people too. So I don't. You're, I'm sure you're you're talking about variety of situations. Folks who deal with this, folks who just support it, things you're being taught in class, and so forth. So we do want to, and I think as young ones, you still can have this, a prophetic voice in the culture, and so you don't want to shy away from that. And we're not looking to avoid offense in general, but knowing how to like what things will be least helpful that I might say or how I might say it, and so being aware of that. And I think, again, just that starting base of what I'm ultimately, and what these people are ultimately offended by is Jesus Christ and God's existence and his claim on their lives. So I'm ultimately trying to work towards them understanding that. So being comfortable with it, it it may mean there's a lot of times where you're not talking about that issue, even though it's around and maybe it 's someone you 're interacting with who deals with that, but but we are we are seeking and God will give you i mean if you 're being faithful and you aren 't afraid to share the truth god 's going to open up those doors for conversation as you 're interacting with those people i had I know I remember you know I had a coworker i 've had a couple situations with coworkers, not just this issue but others where seeking to be faithful, to share Christ with them. We're talking about issues, and it comes to a point where, yeah, we wind up talking about, yeah, you're living with your boyfriend, that's thats sin, and God designed, you know. And and you can build a respect with people where they see you're not just some bigoted, hateful, whatever, you know, and you're able to share truth in a winsome way. I remember one gal, I was uh, a coworker of mine, we had interacted a lot casually just over different things, and then we wound up it's a long story I won't share, but at this table for like 45 minutes sitting together and just had a, a chance to talk. And she, you know, come to find out she's married, but she also has a a, um, a mistress on the side who her husband's fine with, and, you know, all these things. And she's asking me pointed questions, and I'm sharing truth, and we're able to talk about it. And it, it doesn't always go smoothly like that, but um, a lot of people, if if we show them, we care. If we show them, we're not just coming out against everything they're doing. If we're bringing a message of hope, um, we're able to speak to those issues then in, in ways. So just keeping the first thing the first thing and building those, those bridges and being, being patient too. So, but bold. That's, so that was like a politician's answer, I feel like, but it's the best I got. Um, in a school setting, I,
2: this would be true for any of us, I think that the, if the people feel like they're projects you're trying to fix, yeah, I think you're going to lose the ability to, to befriend them. Yeah. And so uh, if if you don't make the thing that seems most broken to you, the thing you focus on, which is what Nick is getting at, um, I think you can build a friendship with them that will give you the platform to be bold when the time comes. Mm-hmm. Um, I happen in, the, in, in, in the, the setting that you're in or in many settings, sometimes it's actually not those who are struggling with this issue yeah. that are hardest. It's their advocates yeah. or people that are advocating for a position. Um, and and I, I would really just say, speak when the Lord gives you the platform, uh, but love the people more than you focus on their sin. Mm-hmm. That's
1: excellent. Other that. questions? The question is about pronoun usage and uh, in the workplace, particularly, for example, if an employee would be required to use preferred pronouns, is that something that uh, that a Christian should be willing to lose his or her job um, over? Uh, Is it a matter of uh, of of truthfulness? Guys, Nick, how about you give us the definitive answer (laughs) on preferred pronouns?
2: (laughs) And, and I, if you give the definitive answer, I may just take the other side of it. That's because. right. And I'm going to tell my boss
0: this. So yes, just yeah, just, you know, Valley yeah. yeah. Valley Creek Church. This, yeah, Valley Creek Church. That's a really, it's a hard question. I mean, there's there's so much there. I. So I'll share some general thoughts. I'll share my personal thought, you know, where I'm at. Um, in general, we don't want to be Aff- affirming anything we're not seeking to affirm. Now that said, there's a lot of things that could look like affirmation along the way that really aren't. We're working towards things, you know, with we're intentional with. So we want to be intentional in this area. We want to be. So if you're, I think there's a way in which someone goes along with pronouns, goes into things just because they really are afraid to engage on this issue. They're afraid of. They're hiding. There's, there's that aspect. So we say no to that. We, we, we do not want to be those people. I do know, I think there's faithful people who have prayed and thought over this, who have decided to use the pronouns as a bridge to be able to, and I, I understand how people get there and they're trying to, to bridge that gap as they're seeking to be faithful to bring truth, as they're seeking to care and not just hiding and not just avoiding the uncomfortable things, So I understand that. Me personally, I'm I'm with you in that feeling of, but I'm speaking, you're not a she, you're not a he. And so, I mean, my personal counsel would be, yeah, I would say, don't engage with the pronoun. See if there's any way you can, you know, say their name. You can, honestly, in some ways, the they, them, I think sounds totally bizarre, but I would be more comfortable with that than he, she, because... It's, it's n- neutral in that sense, you know, so maybe you wrestle with that. Um, but it, that is a real thing, you know, and we want to be people of the truth, and we don't want to be uh, speaking a falsehood. And that, that is a tough thing when it comes down to, am I going to lose my job over this? And, and there's a reality there of that does happen. And, and that may happen. And the ultimate goal is not keeping our jobs. I'll say that. Like the ultimate goal is, not, goal is not keeping our jobs. So maybe we give thought and prayer and maybe the Lord leads you in something. But the ultimate goal is not hanging on to my job. The ultimate goal is honoring God. And if you lose your job over something like this, God is still on the throne. And God is working through that situation, and we read in the scriptures of people taking stances. We think of Daniel, and we think of, you know, these folks who said no to doing the thing that they were being told to do, and God meets them. Um, And he will meet you in some way or another. He will meet you. He's not going to have you, you know, be faithful to him and then just abandon you. It's not going to happen. may not look like what you hoped or what you wanted, but he will meet you and he will be with us. So we're seeking to be faithful to the Lord.
2: I'm uncomfortable with what I said before because now I have to take the opposite view of being faithful to the Lord.
0: <laughs>
2: <clears throat> um, and, and I don't, I don't want to do that. The way you ended made my next comment very uncomfortable.
0: I disagree with <laughs>
2: Nick. <laughs> You're right. Let me just disagree with him. Um, no, I, I, m- my personal practice in this is I, I, do, I practice the name thing as much as I can. Uh, and yet, I know, uh, in many cases, I don't know for certain, but I know in many cases, uh, if you choose right at the outset to deny just how the person prefers to be addressed, you'll lose all platform to actually get to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, maybe that, maybe we trust God for that and he'll open doors another way. Um, the, the, at least what I want to say to you is that faithful Christians uh, can differ on this very question on whether or not to use their preferred pronouns without having their faithfulness to God at stake. Mm-hmm. What is most important is, is for us to go to the Lord and ask, where are my convictions resting on this issue? Mm-hmm. And if I'm firmly convinced, as you said in your question, it's lying to do this then it's sin for you to do it it. and you absorb the consequence for standing for righteousness Mm -hmm. just I I would I would I would caution that that should not be held as the standard for a brother over here and that we allow not hiding nobody's looking to hide we can all agree on that 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 we don't want to, to shy away from being courageous but as we're wise in engaging these things there needs to be some latitude that we exercise and we not hold the clear conviction we may have before God as some standard over the clear conviction someone else should have
1: before God yeah, I think that that really applies to both sides of things right so that if someone would have a perspective like the one that Nick has articulated yes. I think it's important to recognize you can function in that conviction I think there are some who would say if you do that You've shut the door to evangelistic effectiveness and you're failing to love others. I do want to say, no, no, let's, like, let's not make those kinds of judgments over the ways that Christians are going to seek to navigate these really complex issues. I mean, another one is the whole language of marriage. If you've ever interacted with um, a homosexual couple that is – they're not married, they, they, uh, but they, they, but they would say that they are married right. – it immediately raised. Do you say, how long have you been married? Um, are you speaking an untruth then to acknowledge that? How long have you been in this so-called marriage? You know, it goes back to VI. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. Like that's not, and then you can yeah. maybe try, that to, and yeah. duck. try to yeah, avoid yeah. it. And so yeah. it's yeah. there in a number of different ways with the terminology. Yeah. We believe this about yeah. marriage. Yeah. We believe this about gender. Now, how do we Technically, there is no such thing as same-sex marriage. It's a, it's a, it's a misnomer. Uh, it, it's so-called same-sex marriage. Um, do we need to have the, the the so-called or put it in scare? You yeah, know, these are some yeah. of the, the the issues that faithful Christians will look to navigate through. Yeah. I think what I want to do is take it one step back and say, let's be a people who are thinking through the issues yes. and who are committed to truth and committed to love, and then at whatever conclusion we arrive at in relation to terminology, how do I then function with that while walking in truth uh, and in love as I'm seeking to, to engage a lost world?
0: Yeah, and with that, just quickly, the thing I was thinking as you were talking, you know, even these points I gave, you know, don't use the words lifestyle or choice or whatever. Maybe you do choose to use those words when you're engaging with someone but what jared just said is right we just we want to be thoughtful you need to know what your words mean to other people as best you can you need to know what your words are going to do in that conversation and maybe you are taking the stance yeah i'm gonna use this word because i believe that's faithful to god but but you're aware, this is going to be really hard for this person to hear. And I understand that. And, and there's compassion there. Or you're being very nuanced in how you're talking with them. And you're explaining, like, I'm going to say this, and it's not because I hate you. But I don't believe this is, you know, a, a real merit. So I'm going to say, and I know this is really hard, and I hate to even do it. But you're aware, this is, gonna, this is going to hit them like a ton of bricks. You know, we just need to be thoughtful mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and, and aware of what we're communicating when we communicate.
1: Let me close with, with uh, just with this thought, and then we'll be available to interact individually with people. The Church of Christ in this moment has a glorious opportunity to stand on the truth of God's word in the midst of a culture that is terribly confused and to do so with, with love and grace. I really see something glorious about what the church uh, is able to be in this particular moment. And one an important distinction to make and to realize is the disti- on LGBTQ issues is the distinction between those who are advocates and those who are victims of LGBTQ ideology. I think that it can be easy to think that everyone is an advocate uh, when the reality is I think a lot of the people that we're going to interact with on a day-to-day basis, there may be some who are... Clearly, fierce advocates, and they have an agenda, and they're pushing it. But I think so much of what we have is people who have bought into the the lies of the world, and whose lives are broken as they're experiencing the effects of that. And so, we have an opportunity to meet them with the love and the compassion of Christ, uh, and with the truth of Christ in a way that that testifies to the gospel. And so, that's our prayer for what we would be as a church. Uh, in this particular area, faithfully standing on the truth, engaging with love, while setting our hope uh, in in the power of the gospel, in the return of Christ, uh, in what He is able to do in the in the lives of others. So, let me pray uh, that God increasingly makes us that kind of people. Father, we uh, we do ask, Lord, that you would give each one of us wisdom, uh, that you would use. Uh, This teaching tonight to equip us according to your word, that we would stand fast on your word of truth. Lord, in the midst of so many cultural winds of doctrine, we are in need of the power of your Holy Spirit to stand firm, to hold fast to your word of truth. And Lord, as we engage the world around us, may we be a people full of grace and truth, just as our Savior is full of grace and truth. Uh, I ask that you would equip each person here with faithfulness and wisdom and love and hope. And may the fruit of your Spirit abound in our lives as we uh, engage the world around us, even as we uh, engage loved ones on these particular issues. May parents who are here be faithful as they seek to disciple <laughs> their children in the paths of wisdom. We ask. Uh, for your protection upon our children, that a generation would rise up and uh, hold fast to your truth and be a light in the midst of uh, a dark generation. Lord, ultimately our trust is in you. Our trust is in your truth, uh, words of power that can never fail. And so we ask that you would use us in the lives of others for your glory. We thank you for this evening. We thank you for the gift that Nick is, for the study that he has done, and for the ways that we have benefited uh, from that. Uh, Bless each brother and sister here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.